Okay, so I'm really happy to welcome Tobias Batten, founder and CEO of Xpopulous, back on the show. I think we last had you on in late 21. A lot's happened since then. Hugely successful launch of the Zyne Network, but of course, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes with Xpopulous and, and everything else. So welcome back on the show, Tobias. So, I mean... As I said, lots has happened. We started working with you through the Ascent program, which is our kind of later stage advisory. You're probably summer 21, had you on the show later that year. And of course, uh, more recently, uh, you've launched Zy Network and lots of interesting things happening on all fronts there. Lots of twists and turns. Of course, you've been doing that with the backdrop of pretty brutal market conditions, especially in the context of Web3 gaming, right? You know, one of the hardest hit of, of all the categories and, and the NFT category. And yet, you know, you, you've managed to uh, not just persevere, but but thrive by all accounts. So gonna, it's going to be really interesting to kind of get into that founder journey. Obviously, a lot of founders listen to this show, and I think you're going to have lots of insights there. But maybe to kind of just refresh ourselves to what ex-populace is and the various other entities and, and how they're related. So I'll kind of give the sound bites and then and then we'll do a quick intro to you in the background. But ex-populace is a next-gen game production and publishing company and believes the best games are the result of industry's most experienced and talented people in the gaming industry, specifically leveraging their skill and best practices to create great entertainment, ultimately great games. Ex-populace is Latin and translates in English to from the people. And there's a bit of a kind of juxtaposition to Ex Machina, which translates from the machine. And of course, you've got Zyme, which is built to enable open trade in the next generation of video games. Some quick kind of, I guess, highlights. You yourself, over 20 years in, in digital product and marketing executive, founded two companies, exited, founded three, exited two. And uh, as I said, the kind of Zy Network and, and X Populous have, have been having a huge amount of success. So the Zy token and network launched, what, less than 30 days ago now? Yeah, the token was January 9th. So that's been less than 30 days. And that was also the same day for mainnet. So it's been been a little less than a month. And of course, the testnet prior to that had some incredible numbers. Almost had to pinch myself when I first read them. <laughs> and he reported them to us. Could that be true? So over half a million unique wallets connected, 4 million daily transactions, 150 million total transactions, and what is now uh, about 32 million in node sales, which is about 50% of, of what's available. As you say, mainnet's now live, integrations happening um, with Binance. I think one of the first Arbitrum layer 3s for that to happen. And more coming, right? Layer 0, Rarible, Third Web, Camelot, so I blasted through it all. We're going to get into a, a lot more of the detail of all of that and what it means. But maybe let's kind of revisit who is Tobias, your background, both as a founder generally, and then, of course, in the context of gaming. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in Michigan, a small town in Michigan called Niles. I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area in 1999. I went to college, had a you know relatively good corporate job out of college at AT&T doing B2B sales. This is way back in like... 2003, 2004. And back then it was, you know, the early, early days of Web 2.0. And I actually ended up in a company that at the time was a pretty big deal, selling them phone lines, selling them like a T1 network. And it was called Atom Films. And this was in the days that, you know, before YouTube existed. So there was a sort of early epoch of online video. And anyway, I looked at their business just because I was selling them a data network. And thought I could do this. I could build this company. So I quit working at AT&T 
and I built a competitor to Adam Films. It was called Liberated Films. And it was one of the first companies to put full-length movies online. So we worked with a lot of independent filmmakers. We worked with a lot of film festivals. I was like 25 years old, very young, didn't really know what I was doing. But, you know, in that era, just putting something on the internet was really hard, like building a website and, you know, licensing all those films. And as a result of that, we grew really fast. We had a ton of traffic on that site. There was no monetization back then. Like it was all about just getting users. So as a result of our growth, we got acquired by a Russian media company called Ren Media Group, which is a big media company in Russia. They saw the saw our growth, reached out to us and acquired the business. Now I was young, you know, like I said in my twenties and I got addicted. Like I went through that arc of being an entrepreneur and, and having an exit and I thought I'm I'm just gonna keep doing this and it was a base hit, right? Like it's not like they bought us for like a billion dollars or anything, but it was, you know, I think just shy of eight figures. And, you know, for me, it, it was awesome. We didn't have any VCs that invested in our company. It was all just kind of family and friends and really kind of created the spark for me to do this for the rest of my life. So the next business I created after taking a little break was called Resistor Productions. So now it's, you know, the late 2000s, it's like 2008, 2009. And this era was the early days of social gaming. So there was a brief moment in time where the iPhone existed, but it did not have an app store. I mean, you could only have first party apps on the iPhone. And where people started playing games were Facebook apps. So you could put like a web game on Facebook and, and that ecosystem was really big for about a year and a half. And there were all these games like Farmville and Mafia Wars that popped up. And we made one of these games. The game that we made was called Clan Wars. And Clan Wars was, you know, top three, top five game on Facebook. It grew to about 10 million active users per month and uh, was acquired by IAC. So actually a smaller group inside of IAC called MindSpark Interactive did the acquisition. This was like 2010. That acquisition took place. Another base hit, you know, not a massive acquisition, but enough to validate what we were doing and make me happy. After that, I took a couple of years off and I helped IGN run an incubator called the Indie Open House. So this was from 2011, 2012 for about a year and a half, which I just did it for free and it was fun. And in this era, I'm really dating myself with this story, by the way. <laughs> you're, you're making me feel old because the funny thing is, is I think we discussed this on the last pod. There's a mirroring really of your journey. I think you're more on the founder side, but I, Atom Films, I remember working with because yeah, in the kind of content side, I worked at a independent kind of content distribution company and they were selling content, short films from festivals, stuff like that to mobile networks. And then of course the social gaming aspect, I was ad agency side. So I was kind of trying to sell ads into that. So I, I'm, I feel as old as you, don't worry. We're, we're <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So I, Sadly I do. Yeah. Yeah, so we're, we so I was at IGN helping them with this incubator and Unity was a brand new engine, you know, and for the first time anybody could make a game, they didn't have to pay a million dollars for an unreal license and there was an explosion of indie gaming that took place around this time and some of the early big indie titles were like Braid and Limbo and Gish and a bunch of others and you know kind of this this wave of indie developers were making these really sort of artistic games and a lot of them were in this incubator and I was there to help them kind of wrap a business around around their game and understand about distribution, understand about marketing and and kind of play that role. So I did that for about a year and a half for fun. And I learned a lot about Steam ecosystem, PCs, consoles, early days of digital distribution. And of course, during this time frame, free-to-play mobile gaming was taking off like in a huge way. 
right? I left that incubator and I created my third company, which was called Signal Zero. And for all of the startup stuff that I'd ever done, like I never really worked with VCs. Like it, it just seemed like really against the nature of even being an entrepreneur to me. Like I had left AT&T earlier in my career because I didn't want to work with like corporate bureaucracy. And anytime I interacted with like big VC firms, it just kind of gave me the same vibe. And I was always very bootstrappy and wanted to find ways to just kind of get it done with minimal capital. So with Signal Zero, we bootstrapped that company. And really the deal with that was there were a lot of game studios receiving a lot of capital from VCs and their like really their mission was to get users like by any means possible. They had to grow. There was no really Facebook ads back then. Not really. It was the early days of Facebook ads. Google was, you know, of course they had their ad platform, but it wasn't really geared towards app stores. So we created an incentivized publishing platform for free-to-play mobile games. And the way it worked was game publisher would come to us. They'd give us, you know, somewhere between usually quarter of a million, half a million dollars. Their goal was to chart their game into the top 10 or top five on the app store. And we would take half that budget and we would give it to our players in the form of points. And then those points could be redeemed for an Amazon gift card, Bitcoin, eventually other cryptocurrencies. So we attracted like 70, 80 million users to this platform over the course of about five years. And we drove close to a billion installs for companies like Supercell, Machine Zone, you know, come to us, all the big uh, free-to-play mobile game publishers in the space. Now, that company was an S corporation. And what that means in the US is the company was made to do dividends to the founders. So we knew that the EBITDA multiple and advertising revenue was a low EBITDA multiple. The, the exit was never planned to be an acquisition. It was basically just flow through, you know, let the cash flow through to the shareholders. So that was a successful business in that regard. And eventually Facebook advertising and, and a focus on ROAS, which is return on ad spend, became more efficacious. Our business started to sort of go down in revenue. So we created a second app. And this was actually a very important experience, I think, for me as a founder. The second app that we created inside of Signal Zero was called Tap Rivals. So this was around 2017, 2018. And one of the big things happening in the industry at that time was skill gaming. So games where you can win money playing, but it's not considered gambling because it's a game of skill. And the big mobile gaming platform that was doing this at the time was called Skills. So we were looking at that platform and saying we should do something similar. But Skills was, was basically a platform where like one player would put, like both players would put up money and then, you know, the winner would kind of take all and the house would take some of it too. We wanted ours to be ad powered. So players would be playing these games. They'd be watching ads in between their gameplay sessions. Those are the ad revenue would go to a pot and like the player with the highest score would win the ad revenue, which was even like more defensible from a gambling perspective because you're never spending any money as a player. So we took the platform to Apple. We took the platform to Google and we got the app uploaded to the stores and approved and Long story short, it grew very fast. We ramped to like almost a million dollars a month in like a three month period. And then the next thing we know, we come into work one day and like the revenue's at zero. And it's because it had been removed from the app store because they changed their mind. And I learned my lesson. You know, if you build your house on somebody else's property, you're taking a risk. 
And just because it's okay today doesn't mean it's going to be okay tomorrow. And ultimately decided to wrap that business up because of the first product we had, the publishing platform. It was a great outcome, I think, for all of us involved. But that takes us to 2019, end of 2019. And I had decided at the end of 2019, I was going to take a year off, spend it with my kids, and then the pandemic hits. So that turned into two years, <laughs> right? which was a, a good time, a lot of hiking in the Bay Area, a lot of good quality time with the family. And then that brings us to X Populous. So 2021, this company was founded. So thanks for that. And, and it's interesting, uh, you know, that, that deplatforming story, because I guess that also feeds into YWeb3 as well. When we're talking about deplatforming, it's not just users, right? It's devs, it's entrepreneurs. If a platform can just switch you off because it doesn't like your business model, you're too competitive, something else, right? That kind of sucks. So I'm sure that was very much part of the Web3 narrative as well. So let's get into the story of X Populous. As you said at the top end, it's kind of had a few pivots. I don't think there's so much exciting stuff happening today. It's not necessarily worth kind of going through all the twists and turns, but I think just generally, you know, why did you start X Populous and then how did that then lead to what it is today? And, and of course, the design network, because I know that a lot of that came from your frustrations with trying to even select a chain to do what you wanted to do with X Populous, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the we started X Populous as a game publishing company for Web3 and uh, had a little bit of dream team to start. So myself as the operator and experienced entrepreneur, my longtime friend, Mark Harris, is our head of creative. He's a Oscar-nominated Pixar director. He was a director of a short called Borrowed Time, is typically supervising animator on their feature films. And then, of course, Sobi. If you're in the crypto industry, you probably know Sobi. And if you don't, then just check out his Twitter account. You'll see who he is. And I've always been crypto casual and crypto friendly before X Populous. You know, I've invested in quite a few things over the years. So that's the team. And the business model was to work with third party games. First game was Lamoverse. They were a third party studio. And we had our own studio where we were working on the card game internally, which is Final Form. Long story short, on Lamo, we ended up doing an acquire of, of their staff and acquiring the IP. So everything came in house, which I think in Web3 is important. There's so many moving pieces in Web3 you know, tokenomics, regulatory strategy, having sort of multiple entities align on those topics is, is pretty tough. So what was initially a publishing company became a publishing and studio where we're, we're kind of doing it all. We launched in 2021. We raised, I think, like $12 million. We have these two games that we're working on. Obviously, the public knows about these games. You know, Lamo in particular is a relatively high project. Final Form has been a slow burn. I think people are getting more excited about it now. And in 2022, we're doing deployments to Solana, Avalanche, a few other chains, and really realizing... Not, I mean, we knew this because we're experienced. We knew there would be user experience issues, but we're really realizing like this is pretty rough, <laughs> right? Like playing a game. And by the way, Final Form is fully unchained. All the game logic executes on chain. It's like an autonomous world and you know, all this stuff. So it was a bumpy ride with some of the chains. And now all these companies are wonderful. Don't get me wrong. We know most of the executive teams at, at these companies and, and they're great. But a lot of these chains were initially built for like DeFi and you're trying to build like an entertainment network on top of it. And it's just not what it was built for, right? Moving into 2023, tried, you know, Polygon and some other stuff. And each one of these networks had its own unique challenges. But the problem in general is if you look at a game like Fortnite, Fortnite has 400 million players. 
Now, obviously, that's an extreme example. But imagine if a game like that, that is that entertaining and that appealing to the public, were to deploy to a chain. Now, what that would do for crypto would be enormous, enormous validation. It would bring a lot of players to adopt the technology. But we just realized, like, really, this is never going to happen if you're asking people to connect a wallet to a game. They're not going to make a wallet. They're not going to want anything to do with this. Like, it's a pipe dream. Never going to happen. So obviously, the industry has been talking a lot about account abstraction and moving sort of all that behind the scenes. We're not the only ones doing that. We were the first, but we really dug in with a few different partners and said, let's figure out this Rubik's Cube of, you know, sort of connecting wallets, gas fees. You know, how do we make this work in a way where you could actually deploy a game to a network and a player could have a great experience to the point that you might have 100 million players on the network? So as a part of that journey... My co-founder, Sobi, he was an early investor in off-chain labs. So we got on calls with their executive staff and, and they were like, hey, we'll solve this problem for you. Just tell us what the problems are. We're going to build you your own custom chain. And this was before there was any mention of Orbit chains or, or any of that, right? So we worked on this project with them. I mean, they built all the technology. We were sort of the like client, first client, the beta client, you know, helping them understand what the issues were. And, and through work with both off-chain labs and third web and layer zero, we were able to create a piece of technology, which is a blockchain and, and a few other things deployed to the chain that meets our user experience requirements, which was a lot of work in 2023. So technically, this is a layer three, right, on the Arbitrum network. Could you maybe just explain what a layer three is, what it does, why it's needed, you know, how it interacts with a layer one or layer two? Yeah, I mean, so it's an optimistic rollup. That's essentially what it is. And of course, Arbitrum 1 is, is a rollup that's built on top of Ethereum. Ethereum is a layer one. Arbitrum 1 is a layer two. And off-chain labs' whole purpose is to scale Ethereum, right? So they're building everything they do is built on top of the Ethereum network. And everything they do is intended to make it faster and cheaper for people who want a cheaper and, and faster experience. If you look at Arbitrum 1, I believe it's the biggest L2 in the world now, if you go based on transaction volume or if you go based on TVL. So the what they've done has worked. Like as a faction, it's not speculation or forecasting. It's like that worked, right? So it's worked wonderfully for DeFi. Now, if you think about the entertainment world, movies, games, and particular games, you're talking about massive audiences that are very impatient. Arbitrum 1, you know, Arbitrum Nova, these layer twos are wonderful but you need even more speed or you need even less cost to kind of facilitate the scale of the network that you're building. So a layer three came up and they were like, we could do a layer on top of the layer two and you know that you would have even more benefits in terms of, in terms of speed and cost. And Arbitrum has two network types. They have a standard rollup and they have what's called AnyTrust. AnyTrust is what Arbitrum Nova is and it's also what our chain is. And what it means is there's trust assumptions that are introduced to the network to make it faster, which is a data availability committee. So you're basically trusting this data availability committee. There's maybe you know somewhere between six or 12 large corporations running these servers that are validating everything that happens on the network. And because you're building it that way, things are very fast. So from a technical perspective and an architecture perspective, that's what Xi is. It's a AnyTrust Layer 3 built on top of Arbitrum 1, which is in turn built on top of Ethereum. Very cool. Thanks for that. And if we kind of look at that stack a little bit more, so we got Sentry Nodes. We've also got different types of accounts. So we've got yield, culture, and governance. Could you talk us through those and then any other kind of important constituent parts? One of the companies that kind of inspired us, one of the projects that inspired us was Gala Games. 
and Gala Games built a really big network in 2020 to like 2022. And they had a node sale. They used nodes to sort of fund the project and, you know, build a network of users and build a community. And we liked that model. Like it, it felt right to us. We wanted to pull people in and, and get them involved in the network as contributors. We felt like high level, we wanted to do the same thing. When we were talking to Offchain Labs, their chief scientist, a guy named Ed Felton, he's really smart. I think he used to be like the CTO of the White House or something, or the deputy CTO or Something like that. <laughs> He's like, hey, I've, I have this problem I've been trying to solve. I call it the verifier's dilemma. And the verifier's dilemma is like, who's watching the watcher? Who's watching the validators? Like at a certain point, people are like, oh yeah, the validators are fine. Well, what if they aren't? So based on that assumption that gets created over time, you have this thing called the verifier's dilemma. And he developed uh, what he called a watchtower node. So these are really simple, lightweight nodes whose job it is to check the assertions that are being made on chain to make sure that they're accurate. And if for some reason they're not accurate, they set an alarm off. And then people can take action based on that alarm. So it's like a security alarm for the network. And you know, read about the verifier's dilemma, and we read about the nodes, and we like that they're very lightweight. So we said, why don't we use these nodes for a gala-esque strategy and sell these nodes to the public, it'll be a way that they can get involved and contribute and help decentralize the network. So just on that point, because I think that's an important thing. So whilst there's a lot of criticism of layer 3s that they increase centralization, you know, censorship, but of course they bring all the benefits of improving throughput costs and everything else. So here you can keep the benefit of that centralization, but you a much more distributed network effectively keep watch on what's happening. Yeah, last uh, my numbers may be off a little bit. So if you're looking at Dune Analytics, you know, don't quote me on this, but I think we're at about 6,000 nodes. And I believe we have, from that perspective, possibly the biggest, most decentralized node network of any blockchain. I don't know of any others that are bigger. Again, don't quote me on that. I might be wrong. There might be one out there that's bigger. But there's a lot of groups out there, a lot of individuals out there who have purchased these nodes. And it's a very high degree of decentralization as, as a result. Yeah. Okay. So sorry, I interrupted you. I broke your flow. And, and so, so we've got, that's a sentry node piece. We've then got the different types of accounts and, and anything else that's important in the network. Yeah. So really the next point in the story is we're like, let's see if this works. We have all these crazy ideas about abstracting wallets and you know moving this experience behind the scenes. Let's put it to the test and see if this is going to work. So at this point in time, we had not sold the sentry nodes yet. What we did is we put up a testnet and we worked with Third Web and obviously Offchain Labs. Offchain Labs created the testnet of the layer three and Third Web deployed their technology, their gas relayer, their indexer, their you know abstracted wallet experience. And we put some test games on the network. One was Third Web's game, which is called Web3 Warriors. The other was Tarochi. And we had some other NFT drops and stuff that, that we put on the network. Now we did an Odyssey style campaign. So, you know, we'd researched like Linnea Voyage and obviously the Arbitrum Odyssey and, and these sort of campaigns work. And ours was not incentivized. We never announced anything about an airdrop. We were just like, look, you'll just get points. Like, what's the point? I don't know. It's just we had a spreadsheet that would count up points for what people did on Testnet. But really, the key here, I think, was the abstraction technology. Like, you never had to connect a wallet. It was all happening behind the scenes with, with Third Web's tech. So if you look at our Odyssey campaign and you compare it to some of the other big ones out there, ours got way, way bigger, right? And it's because of the reduction of friction. It's because it, it was just easy. You just click on a website and you're playing a game and NFTs are being minted in the background as, 
as the game is played or being traded in, you know, the web three warriors game is kind of like a Diablo style game with a lot of loot. So you can imagine, you know, what that was like. And we just saw the numbers start climbing up. And it was like, I remember when we hit a hundred thousand transactions per day, we were like, Oh, this is really great. Like it's working. You know, you fast forward to 30 days later and there was literally a day where we hit 5 million transactions in a single day and we were just blown away. We were like... I remember you kind of feeding these stats through and I had to have the team like treble check them because I, you know, was, of course, I don't believe you, but I was like, how are they counting? You know, this is... But of course it was all true. Yeah. And Offchain Labs was reaching out to us. They were like, what the hell is going on? (laughs) They're like, I'm like, hey guys, it's entertainment. You've been working in DeFi for... Everything's been so focused on DeFi. Now you're seeing what an entertainment network looks like. It's big. It's a lot of users. And if you can reduce that friction, then the numbers get really big. So that happened and that really started to build like momentum and hype. Like our numbers on Twitter and Discord were going up fast and people were interested trying to understand what's going on and how can they get involved. And we decided to do the node sale, right? So again, this was inspired by Gala Games, but we have our own sort of technology strategy that's that's unique that came from Offchain Labs. And we put the nodes up for sale. And I, I remember talking to Sobi, obviously the market's been terrible. It's been horrible, right? We're forecasting like how much money do we think we're going to, you know, how much revenue are we going to drive in the sale? Sobi's like, I don't know, like maybe 2 million bucks or something over like 30 days, right? And so we, we launched the sale and it was $6 million in like the first 30 minutes, you know? And it was like, oh my gosh. And, you know, they, everything crashed and broke and we never expected that. And never in our wildest forecast predictions or anything did we expect that, just given where the market's been, right? But it happened. And, you know, looking back from today, now we're at about $32 million in revenue on that node sale, and people are still buying the nodes every day. And yeah, it was a smashing success. And the other thing that's been really interesting to see is there's a ton of other projects out there now that are doing the same thing, where they're basically saying that looks like a successful model and we want to mimic it. Now, to be completely fair, there's other companies that have done this before. Gal is the one that, that we looked at. I think another one called Myria had done something similar. So we certainly weren't the first, but we definitely made people pay closer attention to the idea, I think, which has been pretty neat to see, right? And look, Dan, that's the cool thing about the space is that you know there's innovation happening at every layer. Business model, go-to-market technology is all done in the open. It's all open source. Everything's a derivative of something it's tweaked if it works if it evolves. that's what's so exciting about it right so the fact that you can take some elements that you've seen work in the past or maybe didn't work but you, you like them and you could be refined and then you can bring it out and i think look we've got many networks ready to go live you know through that we've worked with over the last even two years to be honest with you they've all been waiting for the market to come back you know fortunately many of them have done really well to conserve or replenish their their treasury and and runway, of course, being fiscally disciplined. But you were the first one to come out the gate this year. January is a tough month to do it because, you know, you've kind of got in the Western world, everyone's kind of coming back from the holidays. You've everything that's going on with ETFs. And then, of course, you're kind of somewhere in between that and Chinese New Year. And normally nobody likes to do anything in January for that reason, right? It's less than that. Exactly. After Chinese New Year is when the world wakes back up, right? Which is like early March. Allegedly, but you prove people wrong. So, you know, that was bold decision, I would say. And I think real um, 
testament to, to kind of your, your leadership, of course, and the wider team. And so you've mentioned now several games there, Crypto Unicorns, I know, Tarochi, Monster Chronicles, dozens more lined up now. You've gone live with Mainnet. What kind of things are we going to be able to see possible now on blockchains? Or is that almost irrelevant? It's just going to be all the stuff you'd usually expect from a game you're now going to be able to do on chain where everything's abstracted away or do you think there is such a thing as a web3 game if you don't mind i'm going to answer your question in a little bit of a roundabout way i want to, there's one thing i want to point out which is if anybody here is like a business management wonk then you'll know who Peter Drucker is. Peter Drucker's called the father of modern management. I used to read all of his books. And one of his quotes that I always liked is, do what you do best and outsource the rest. And when we saw the testnet really start to lift off, you know, we had a, I had a conversation with my team and I'm like, what does this company do? What are we doing? What's the purpose of X Populous? Over this two years, we had hired all this AAA talent from companies like Blizzard and Ubisoft and everything else. And, you know, really our bread and butter is making games and then marketing those games and making them big. Those are the functions of ex-populous. So what came out of that conversation is, well, who's going to do the token stuff? Who's going to do the blockchain stuff? Like, really, that shouldn't be ex-populous. So a, a company was founded, which is called Xi Foundation, which has totally different founders and a different team. And the purpose of Xi Foundation is really to focus on custody of the blockchain, you know, make sure the Sentry node network is growing and tended to, and to, you know, to issue the token and do all that stuff. So... When you hear about these two different companies, you know, essentially X Populous is a vendor of the foundation. We have, you know, a strategic alignment, I think, with the Xi Foundation. But those two companies exist, I would imagine, somewhat similarly to how like Offchain Labs works with the Arbitrum Foundation. So that's how those two companies kind of relate to each other. Now we focus on is obviously we're making our games, we're making Final Form, we're making Lamoverse, and then we have really good publishing team. So game publishing, really what that means is marketing and distribution. You know, if a game needs marketing and distribution, if they don't have, you know, sort of the, the understanding of how that works, or if they do have the understanding and they don't have the manpower, then we can provide those services to different games. So the flow that's basically happened, we've had all these games that have come in and said, we want to be a part of the Xi ecosystem. So they go do a deal with the Xi Foundation, or they simply just deploy. They don't need to do a deal. It's all open. Some games have just simply deployed. Some have asked for grants, and that's part of what the foundation does. Once their business with the foundation is wrapped up, then they can work with us and we can help them with marketing and distribution, us being ex-populous. And we have a lot of partnerships in place with companies like The Mix, the Media Indie Exchange, you know, really good inroads with like Steam and Epic Game Store and Nintendo. So yeah, after, you know, basically to more directly answer your question is after this launch took place, huge inbound, huge deal flow, you know, lots of companies with games that want to figure out what Zai is all about and where all these big numbers came from and, and understand if they can benefit from it. So we've been working with those companies to, to help them. The first big company to sort of make the decision was Laguna Games. Laguna Games did the Crypto Unicorns games, and they've been with Polygon, and they said, we want to move over to Zai. So that was a big announcement. Some other ones, Tarochi from Paima, obviously, is a game that's been with us since Testnet. And there's like dozens. <laughs> like there's, I, I have to make sure I remember which ones are like have settled their deals with the foundation and which ones have not, because I don't want to spill the beans. But there are dozens of games that are working to deploy to the Zai blockchain, which is really cool. Very cool. So then maybe if we kind of 
zoom out a little bit and think more generally about what this represents to gaming. You, you kind of talked about these phases in the development of gaming, you know, whether it's kind of social gaming, of course, mobile now, big battle lines being drawn in courts, Tim Sweeney, uh, of course, of Epic and Apple. Of course, much of that very relevant to what can then happen in terms of apps and Apple in Web3 and, and what kind of interactions they may or may not be able to have with, with blockchains. And then, of course, AI and generative AI and, and what that means to the ability to kind of create games more quickly, more easily, reduce down the cost, time, financing required for um, creating games. So what's your kind of big take on where we are in the context of gaming and the role of, of Web3 in that? I think that in the context of gaming and Web3, there are, are, let me put it this way, there's already huge traditional games with ecosystems built around trading in-game items. So Counter-Strike is a good example, probably the best example. If you go to the Steam ecosystem, they have the Steam community market. This is where people can buy and sell items. Frankly, an enormous amount of speculation happens in that marketplace. And you often see Counter-Strike skins going for you know $100,000, $150,000 for a skin. The thing that I think is unique to America, to the United States of America, is a distaste for crypto technology. And we've boiled that down to maybe three reasons. I think the first reason is simply the friction, which kind of exists all over the world. It's, it's maybe not unique to the USA. There's a lot of people that don't want to mess with wallets because they're pain. Let's face it. The second is, I do think, you know, if you look at some of the PFP projects that came out in 2021, or maybe even most of them, the sort of bro culture that existed around those projects really turned people off, particularly in the USA. I think there was a large large cohort of, of potential users of this tech that said, I see what that is and I don't like it, so I'm not going to interact with it. And then the third part is sort of like the propaganda around the environmental stuff, right? Like, surely proof-of-work networks are, are using a lot of energy and, and there's, there's room for argument there, but the majority of networks that this technology is built on are proof-of-stake net- networks and are highly efficient or even carbon neutral. Getting past all that stuff, really the player experience here is what people love on the Steam community market with games like Counter-Strike. So getting people past that is is kind of what we're working on. We're abstracting all the technology behind the scenes, which kind of Trojan horses people into this experience, and we think that they're going to love it. We think they're going to come into the games that are deploying to the network and are using the third web abstraction technology and the layer zero, really cool layer zero stuff that's been built. And they're going to have experiences that that, that kind of mimic that, you know, and we think they're going to like that a lot. So I, I think the future for Web3 games is exactly what you see there already, which is a better version of the Steam community market. The game itself has to be awesome. You know, that's kind of the, the second challenge. If you're making kind of these crappy games that are nearsighted or short-sighted and just about like an economic incentive pop, like that stuff I think is it's never going to have long legs. Those things are at best going to have short legs, if any legs at all. But specifically in regards to their there's two other points that you brought up. The other point was distribution, right? I shared my story earlier about getting deplatformed. I think the EU just had a ruling last week. You know, now we can have some different app stores 
that feed the physical device of mobile phones. And those different app stores could have different policies or just be open. And I think that's really promising. You know, the uh, ex-populace has exclusively pursued PC games because of that reason, right? Like, we don't want to put a game on the app store and, like, it's here today and then it's gone tomorrow. Like, that's an enormous amount of risk. If you have a game with NFT technology in it or a token, you spend millions of dollars on the game and you put it on the app store, like, I would never do that. Right, I would I would never do that because <laughs> it could just be gone. They could they could rug you, frankly. Right. So yeah, I think there's a lot of doors that'll open on that front and make things a bit more dependable and and have some real competition in the marketplace. I think that's a great thing. And then in terms of artificial intelligence, I mean that's obviously a touchy subject in games, right? Like our policy at Xpopulous is that we do use AI, but for example, like Midjourney or Stable Diffusion, like that's a tool that artists that we hire, they can use that if they want to. We don't have non-artists who are using that stuff. So, you know, each company and each individual, I think, needs to figure out their own their own policy on how they interact with that technology. What I can tell you is like right now where the tech exists, I don't think Midjourney or Stable Diffusion can make production art. I think it's fine for concept. I think it's fine as a tool for brainstorming, but everything's always got some little thing that's wrong with it. <laughs> and you're going to have to give it to a real artist to fix it anyway. So that, you know, the, the, organically what happened in our company is like if the actual artist wants to use it, sure, they can, but like don't have non-artists using that tech because you're going to end up with some weird eyeball or some weird finger and people are going to notice and it's not, you know, it's just, it's not there yet. But, you know, longer term, obviously the technology is advancing rapidly. So I think sky's the limit for where it could be in two, three or five years. Well, look, it's been amazing catching up. As I said, clearly a seasoned founder. I mean, a founder, sometimes it can be dangerous for a founder to have a home run with their first startup, but that, that's not been the case with you, right? You kind of consistently had various home runs at different scales, but ultimately that's allowed you as a founder the freedom to, I guess, really work on what you want to work on to be able to bootstrap things to a degree for perhaps a little bit longer. But many founders might kind of just be starting out now and they might be bootstrapping, not necessarily because they want to be, but this is this where they're at, right? You know, they don't have the chops or they're too early in the kind of development cycle to unlock venture capital. You know, you've kind of come through a bear market where actually the ability to bootstrap was almost a prerequisite. It's very difficult to kind of raise capital. What kind of tips have you got for Web3 founders? Okay, we're coming into a slightly different market cycle now, potentially. Funding might be more easily available, but what tips have you got to kind of help founders either coming into Web3 or native to Web3 kind of navigate this next cycle? Well, look, this is just my perspective and there's like survivorship bias or whatever they call it. And my career has been base hits. You know, I think I might have my first home run now with what we're doing right now, but it's been getting on base consistently. And from 2011 or so till 2021, that decade was a very special decade. The cost of money was basically zero. And I think a lot of bad habits were created in that decade where VCs were, you know, the money chain, the money tree was... There was zero resistance, just flowed. The money just flowed, right? So I don't think it's going to be that way again for a while. I don't think that's going to come back in like three months or six months or a year or two years. I think things have changed for a while. And that's general to venture, right? We're not talking about Web3 now. We're talking about general tech. 
talking about macro, crypto is going to have its own cycles inside of that, which are, you know is going to be. Crypto has always got a kind of its own thing going on. So, the thing that I learned through my journey, because you know, in when I was 25 years old and I was doing my first startup, I had no idea how to raise money or do anything. So I just used credit cards and talked to my family and gritted it out, and it worked. And then I like that was my first experience. So there was never this thing in my brain of like, I need a VC, right? And I think what I've seen happen when I observe other companies, like, what is your focal point? Your focal point should be your customer. Your focal point should be the market. You're going to make a product or you're going to make a service and you're going to release that to the market. And if the market likes it, you're going to succeed. And if they don't, you're going to fail. Like, that is the simple equation here. The thing that frequently happens with founders of all ages and experience levels is they are not thinking about what the market wants or what their customer wants. They are thinking about what the VC wants. And those two things are frequently not the same thing because VCs are just like us. Like some of my best friends are VCs. I'm an angel investor, just people. Everybody has their own ideas of what they think is going to succeed. And most of the time, we're all wrong. So I wouldn't get too fixated on like whatever the current VC meme is of like, oh, you got to be this or you, like really what you got to do is you got to make something that's going to like someone's going to spend money on it. So keep your focus on the customer. Never deviate from that from the start. Hopefully, a VC sees the same thing you do and there's alignment. If you're able to raise significant capital because of that, then that's going to help you. But the last thing you want to do is raise capital from a VC and then go down a path where no customers want what you're doing because you're just making a big mess. And I think that actually happens a lot. That's the feedback, I think, just kind of given where the market is right now is, you know, the cost to build is really low. I know it's not easy. You know, my first company, I was living off three grand a month in a crappy San Francisco apartment and did that for over a year and it sucked. It was horrible. But honestly, like looking back, like that was some of the funnest times of my life. Like I just didn't give a shit at all. Right? Like, so, so anyway, yeah, that's the feedback. Have fun. Focus on the customer. Don't sweat it. You're going to be fine. Well, look, I think that's probably the best way we, we can end the pod. No need to say anything more than that. Tobias, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. It's been amazing watching your journey and that of the team over the last couple of years. And, you know, just a huge amount of excitement behind the network. Sure, you know, the price action is drives attention. But I think if you just look at the fundamentals of, of what you're doing there, the network, the adoption, at all levels at the stack, but as you say, most importantly, the games and then presumably the users that are going to now come with the games. I think incredibly exciting a step for the industry as a whole and of course for the evolution of gaming. So thanks for being a great founder and, and coming on and sharing your insights. Thanks for the support, Jamie. Really appreciate you and, and Outlier and how you've helped us over the past couple of years. It's been wonderful. And thanks for having us on the show again. It's been our pleasure. Thanks, Tobias. Awesome. Thanks. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3. 